and we're going to look at the whole chapter. I'm going to take a, a unique angle at this chapter, at least I, I preached through Ephesians before, but I didn't even look at my last sermon from this chapter years ago, and because I just want the Holy Spirit to speak to me freshly right now. What we're, the world has changed so much since I preached this through Ephesians maybe seven years ago. So let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 22. Let me read the passage to you. And here's the big idea that we're going we're gonna to see here. Even when we're dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. And in that big idea, embedded within it, is the problem, the cure, and the result. The problem, the cure, and the result in regards to the human race. You may want to listen. That's pretty significant, right? <laughs> Ephesians 2, verse 1. And he made alive, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So thankful for that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Talk about a depressed place to be. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we, have both, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now obviously in a matter of 30 minutes I can't even begin to uh, express everything that could be expressed here, but let's get to that big idea. 
even when we were dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. And three things that are embedded within this big idea. What is the problem with the human race? What is the cure for the human race? And what are the results of that cure? So the problem, <laughs> Paul really defines it in the first three verses, doesn't he? Um, there are a lot of brilliant people in this world trying to figure out what is wrong with the world. And here we have an ancient solution to a modern day problem right here in these three verses. How does Paul define, we don't have the solution, but we, we have the problem defined for us. So how does Paul define this problem here? So first he says that, he, he's talking to the Ephesians, they were dead in transpa transpasses and sin. So this could be said to any human, right? What is sin? Sin is breaking one of God's laws, to put it very simply. It's to disobey one, of, one or more of his commands. Uh, one major problem with the human race is that we are constantly living outside of God's intentions, outside of God's design. And when, that, when we do that, it has a whole variety of devastating consequences that all of you are very familiar with. Why do we sin, though? Why do we covet? Why do we lie? Why do we envy? Why do we have unrighteous anger? Why do we blow up? Why um, do we deal falsely with people? Why do we tell white lies? Why do we do these things? Paul tells us in our verses here that it's because we conduct ourselves according to the lust of the flesh. Now this is interesting. The Greek word translated lust here means not like you're probably thinking sexually, like sexual lust. This is not what it's talking. It could be that, but it's not talking about that. So the, the Greek word that's translated lust means an over-desire, an inordinate desire, an all-controlling longing or craving. That's what lust means. This is absolutely critical to understanding the human problem because the main problem that most of us have it's not that we desire bad things, but that we desire good things too much. This is critical. This is so critical. When we take a good thing and say, I've got to have it for my life to be okay, for it to have meaning, for it to be successful, for me to be happy, we're not just desiring something, we are over-desiring it. We, are ha we have an excessive desire for it. It is an all-controlling life-ruling desire for us. It is a normal good thing to want a successful career. However, if, I, if it, this thing has become an ultimate thing to me, if I'm over-desiring it and I'm thinking that I have to have it or my life is worthless, then that's when you know it's become an inordinate desire. It's normal to want to be married but if that desire to be married is like, I've got to have it or I can't live a happy life without it, that's an excessive desire, inordinate desire. That is a lust of the flesh. Amen. Amen. If I want my children to succeed in life, I hope all parents do, that's a good thing. But... If my children excelling, I have to have it for my life to have value and for me as a parent to have worth, it is an inordinate desire, lust of the flesh. It's normal to want to be comfortable and want to feel safe and secure. 
But if my desire for comfort and security is like I have to have it, it's excessive. It's a lust of the flesh. So when we sin, when we're envious or when we're jealous or when we burst out in anger, it's because most likely we are over desiring some good thing. Now, Paul tells us that we over desire good things because of our flesh. What does Paul mean by flesh? So, Flesh is our sinful nature that does not want to live under God's rule. It doesn't want to trust God and it seeks salvation apart from him. That's what the flesh is. Our flesh, in attempt to create a life of significant satisfaction and security, is an idol-making machine. It abhors God. It has no other, and since it's abhors God, it has no other choice but to try and find the things the soul craves for in other, other things, in other people. Um, our flesh loves to set its eyes on one of God's gifts, and then, once it, and then it says, our flesh tells us we, we've got to have it. And so what, what the flesh does is it turns a good thing into a, a God thing and thereby creates an over-desire for it. And then we become controlled, we become enslaved, and we, become, uh, we have this excessive desire for this idol that we're worshiping. Beneath all of your sinful actions is excessive desire. And beneath all of your excessive desires is that your flesh has created an idol out of some probably good thing. This is critical. Paul says, so Paul continues to define the problem. He says, you are walking according to the world. And speaking of the world, Paul is not referring to the physical cosmos. He's referring to the, the, the whole prevailing belief system, worldview, values, that are contrary to the ways of God that popular culture promotes. That's what Paul means by world. Our American culture tells us a ton of false gospels. Um, let me just mention a few. The, go the, the, the false gospel of physical beauty. If we can just look a certain way, then life will be good, right? And so we have like the beauty industry, billions of billions of dollars. It, 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 you know, it receives. Another false gospel, the gospel of materialism. If we can just own certain things, then life will be good. Right? The gospel of romantic or careerism. If we can just have an astounding, you know, astounding and outstanding career, then life will be good. Romantic love, if we can just be in a relationship with another person where there's deep attraction and great sex, then life will be good. How about the gospel of individualism? This is rampant in this area and in our Tesla community. It's the same. We want to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. And we don't want anybody to tell us how to live. Was that glaringly clear during the pandemic? 
We gotta, we gotta call out our cultural idols, right? How about the gospel of, <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm not gonna mention anymore. Let's, let's go to this. Because we could keep going, right? And you could probably come up with more than I can come up with. But we are being bombarded with these messages. And what this does is the world promotes these messages which fans the flame of our flesh towards idolatry and over-desire. That's what happens. Paul continues to define the problem. We're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. This is Paul's way of referring to Satan and his agents. Satan and his agents are behind the false gospels that our culture is continually promoting. And there are, Satan and his agents are always looking to influence our flesh to turn natural desires into excessive inordinate desires. Satan wants us to over-desire good things so that we can go about fulfilling legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Look, <laughs> Satan would be largely unsuccessful if his tactics were like super overt. And so he operates in covert ways. Let me give you an example. If he came to you and told you to go murder your coworker, you would say, get behind me, saying, I'm going to go murder my coworker. So what does he do? Check this out. This is what I could think of anyway, so hopefully he's good. So this is what he does. A more strategic way for Satan is to get you in his grip by doing this. Let's say you have a natural desire for human approval. It's normal, it's natural, it's not a bad desire, right? And so what he does is he, he tempts the flesh to make that a over-desire. And so what happens when you're at work and there's a promotion to be had, he, you start talking about your own self in exaggerated ways that accentuate your positive traits and you start talking negatively about your co-worker in exaggerated ways so that when that promotion comes you get it did you murder your co-worker no but you sure started the seeds of murdering that co-worker's reputation mm. this is how satan likes to work let me give you another example if satan told you to mistreat your child you say get behind me satan i'm not mistreating my child so, a more strategic way for Satan to get you to mistreat your child is to see your desire, to see your child do well in life, and to influence you, your flesh, to over-desire it so that you are constantly hovering over them, removing any sort of adversity from their life, and so that you punish them severely when they do mess up out of fear that they might go down the wrong path. Did you murder your child? No. But you're not helping your child. One of the things the elders and I have been talking about is in the Tulsa community and in the Maslin community, what are some of these problems and idols? One of them is this, and we talked about this, that parents are clearing the path for their children instead of uh, preparing their children for the path, right? Something like that. They're preparing the path for their children instead of preparing their children for the path. It's a big problem. That, that's devastating to their development, right? And so let's recap the problem with the human race. You have Satan, 
and his agents working to promote false gospels, false good news to us that inflames our flesh, gets it to over-desire good things that leads to sin on the surface. Hmm. What's the cure? Well, I'll tell you some faulty cures that our culture also, also peddles. Let's, let's look at three of them real quick. Uh, one cure is to remove desire. Just if, if, you know, if you start getting underneath our surface sins, it is this over-desire for good things. Let's just remove desire, and then there won't be those surface sins, right? Logical. Um, the boys and I, we were watching uh, Star Wars this past Tuesday, and we were watching Revenge of the Sith, right? So we're, we're watching the, the movie, and if those of you have seen it, spoiler alert, spoiler alert if you haven't, but Anakin uh, Walker, right, Skywalker, he has this bad dream of his wife dying, and he is greatly disturbed. Yoda counsels Anakin Skywalker by telling him this. Check this out. Rejoice for those around us who transform into the Force. Mourn them. Do not. Miss them. Do not. In typical Yoda fashion, right? Attachments lead to jealousy. The shadow of greed, that is. Anakin says, what must I do, Master Yoda? Yoda says, train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Yoda is saying, look, Anakin... You love your wife too much, and you don't want anything bad to happen to her, and you're going to suffer if something bad happens to her, or you're going to do something crazy to protect her, so the answer is to get rid of your desire. Let go. Don't have that desire of love anymore. This is a very Buddhist sort of teaching that they, the Buddhism will get the, the problem and the reason why we suffer and the reason why we have issues is because we desire. And so the, the, the key is to get rid of all desire. But if you get rid of all desire, what must you also forfeit? Love. Love. So that's not a good answer. Here's another uh, false cure for the problem we define. Idol swap. This happens all the time. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, imagine you have a, a woman who's finding her identity in romantic relationships with men. And she realizes she's in that long enough that she realizes that that is a dead end. It's not fulfilling her like she, like she thought it would. And so what she does is she plunges herself into her career. And she tries to, like, find her identity in her career. She's no longer, you know, being with all these, all these men. But she just swiped one, uh, swapped one idol for another idol. She's still enslaved. And she'll find that there's no freedom in careerism either. So we do this all the time. How about behavior management? This is another way we try and deal with the, the problem. So... If you're angry, the behavior management uh, tells you you, 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 uh, you learn skills to deal with the anger. You learn how to breathe, you learn how to count, you know, you learn how to uh, visualize and think positively. That's how you do with the anger. That's how you deal with it. But the problem with behavior management, it may, it may be successful in the short term, but it's rarely successful in the long term. And why is that? 
Because you're only dealing with the fruit of the problem, you're not dealing with the root of the problem. You gotta chop sin off at its roots. What is the real cure that Paul offers? Check this out, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trans, dead in, I want to say transgressions, dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Thus anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In order for our addiction to sin uh, to sin to be cured, we must become alive to God. We must become alive to God. Why must we become alive to God? Verse 10 tells us that when we become alive to God, we become God's workmanship that he creates new. Or you could say he renews us, he restores us, right? One of the main ways that God renews us is he reorders our disordered love. That's the problem with us. We, our love is disordered, meaning we love so many things far above God. And when that happens, things get really hairy. And so what the Holy Spirit does when we receive Christ through repentance and faith, deep now in our new nature that the Holy Spirit gives to us, we love God supremely. Now, once we love God supremely, guess what? Everything is then, all our other loves become subordinate to that supreme love. Which is a good thing. Let me explain why. Let's go to the result. When we love God supremely, when we're made alive to Him, the Holy Spirit gives us a new nature. And in our heart of hearts, we now desire to love God, and we, we do love God supremely. This is what happens. We are liberated to actually love others. Look, if we're enamored by the way God loves us, and we're filled with amazement of how he paid the ultimate price so that we could be brought into a loving relationship with him, and our love tank is full, now we have love to dispense. Now we're not just relating to other people to try and fill that void. And that's how we often approach relationships. We're actually free to move towards other people, not in a desperate attempt to try and grab a hold of love we're missing, but rather to dispense it to other people. A right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with others. If you look at verses 11 through 22, which I will not read, but it talks about how the Ephesians, once they were restored in relationship to God, it brought Jews and Gentiles together. Right relationship with God, if he's your supreme love, will lead to loving others to, in the proper way, to the, to the right degree. You see, when we love God supremely, our love will have guardrails. This is important. 
We'll actually love people to the right intensity. We won't uh, love them beyond God, and so we won't do anything outside of God's will in our interaction with them. And so when we're tempted to lie, or we're tempted to manipulate, that's not going to happen because we are subordinate all of our actions are subordinate to our ultimate love for God. So it puts guardrails on our relationships. When we love God supremely, we will be free to actually enjoy the gifts God gives us. If you over desire a successful career, are you going to enjoy your career? You're not going to enjoy it. Because it's going to be so stressful. And every decision you make is going to be like your life is on the line. And if you fail or if you receive criticism, you're going to be absolutely crushed. It's just going to be bad. If, you're, uh, if, 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 you're, if you love supremely um, something else other than God, one of his good gifts, you're not going to be able to enjoy the gift. You just won't. Let's make this practical. And we'll, we'll close with this. Let's say you're in traffic and your blood starts boiling because you're in a traffic jam, right? And you start being super snippy with your spouse, right? Um, I've never experienced this, and so I'm sure you, you guys may have. Um, so surface level sin is you're ticked off that you're in a traffic jam, right? Surface level. Now you could stop there, but that's not gonna give you very helpful information. So you go underneath it. What, what thing do I crave in this moment that is causing me to sin? Well, if you look underneath that, you might say, well, I don't want to be late for this appointment with, the, with these friends that we have. But why do you crave not being late? And you look underneath that, it's because you don't want to dis the, disappoint the people that you're about to meet with. So what is that? You have an inordinate desire to please people in that moment that is causing you to live outside of God's will and treating your spouse not very well. Um, let's, let me give you this example from an author, David uh, Paulson. This is, this is very good. A woman commits adultery and repents. She and her husband rebuild the marriage patiently, patiently, painstakingly. Eight months later, the man finds himself plagued with subtle suspiciousness and irritability. The wife senses it and feels a bit like she lives under FBI surveillance. The husband is grieved by his suspiciousness because he has no objective reasons for it. I've forgiven her. We've rebuilt our marriage. We never have communicated better. Why do I hold on to this mistrust? It emerges that he is willing to forgive the past, but he attempts to control the future. His craving could be stated this way, I want to guarantee that betrayal never, ever happens again. The object of his desire is good. Its ruling status poisons his ability to love. The lust to ensure her fidelity places him in the stance of continually evaluating and judging his wife rather than loving her. What he wants cannot be guaranteed this side of heaven. He sees the point, sees his inordinate desire to ensure his marital future. But he burst out, what's wrong with wanting my wife to love me? 
What's wrong with wanting her to remain faithful to her marriage? Here's where this truth is so sweet. There is nothing wrong with the object of desire. There's everything wrong when it rules his life. Um, so, uh, let's make this even more practical, and this will be it. So, I want you to think about, I mean, some of you probably can't think about a way you sinned this past week, but maybe you have to go back this past month. It's a joke. But you may have to, I don't know. Yeah, or on your way to church, when your kids were being knuckleheads, and that happens quite a bit. That never happens to us. I hear you guys tell me about that. <laughs> so, all right. Let's think about this past week. When, when have you sinned this past week or past month? Or maybe you need to think of a habitual sin, a habitual pattern of sin. So go ahead. Think about it. If you cannot think of a sin, that should tell you something, by the way. It's probably not good. Seriously. Because it means you're probably not stopping and pausing and being introspective enough. And you're just kind of going through life without thinking. So think about that. Now, I want you to ask the question, what craving was I looking to fulfill when I did whatever it was. Think about that. And then you got to go underneath that. What idol am I worshiping that is causing my flesh to lust? For this craving to be filled. What, what idol am I worshiping that is causing me to over-desire something that I'm living outside of God's will? So, here's the awesome thing. If you, if you are alive to God, there is no sin problem that can't be overcome. So this is good news. Right? This is wonderful news. That the Here's the thing. These habitual patterns of sin are so ingrained in us that like we truly need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Like we like our brain actually needs to be have new neural connections start firing so that the ways of Jesus become more automatic to us. But at first, we have to unearth what's really going on in our heart. And then as we unearth that with the Holy Spirit, we receive His power to live differently. Then we start to form new habits so that when you're in traffic, a traffic jam the next time, guess what you'll do, knee jerk? You'll be at peace. You'll continue to treat your wife or your husband in positive ways. That'll be your knee jerk reaction. So this is good news. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our Savior. Thank you that uh, you have removed the penalty of sin from us and you are at work through the Holy Spirit to free us from the power of sin in our life. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will remove us even from the presence of sin. Until then, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just go through life 
without thinking and just being reactive, but that we would be proactive, that we would spend time with you and we would ask you, Holy Spirit, to search our hearts and, and, and show us if there's anything you know, that's not right there. Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart that desires you supremely and that as that happens, um, we would see all of our other love being ordered in the right way, subordinate to that ultimate love. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that just feels overwhelmed by their sin or just feels like they're stuck, pray that they would know that there is liberation in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.